Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Lucy Ward, BT Sports co-commentator, and by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. This week's guest is Leeds striker Patrick Bamford, who gives us an insight into the pressures of the relegation battle. First, though, the fallout from Manchester City's defeat of Arsenal. City's dominance was based on their intensity and intelligence. As a statement of intent, it was pretty impressive. Now, Lucy, you were there. Title decided? I think so. I, I mean, we were going into it. I mean, I think that what you've got to think is that Arsenal have done so well going into this game. You know, they've, they've led the, the league. I think Arteta learnt so much from Guardiola when he was working with him and he sort of adapted that to to fit in with his team. And I, But I just think that the way that City set up, I think, surprised Arsenal. It sort of affected how they pressed Manchester City and Manchester City just took advantage quite early and got themselves on the front foot. And Arsenal just didn't look like they had that belief because City were just so intense. You know, they they used the ball well. They didn't, we, you know, we used to seeing City sort of pass, 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 pass and, and control games like that. But at the moment, and particularly last night, they were a little bit more vertical, a little bit quicker with the way that they attacked and, and I don't think Arsenal could cope with it. So, yeah, as dominant as a performance as you would see in a game of, of that sort of magnitude anyway that we've seen in recent years. But, you know, talking to people beforehand, everybody I spoke to, didn't predict anything other than a City win just because of how ominous they are at this stage of the season. I did say on air last night, I think the only thing that, that Arsenal haven't collapsed, they've just not been perfect in the past. If you win in the league as you know, by sort of have a cushion of five points, you can afford not to be perfect because you can just keep the the, the second place at arm's length, but but not City. You can't do that with City because they're just you, they're just so brutal in the way that they just get a, a run going at the end of the season. Yeah, from Arsenal's point of view, Aid, is it time for a bit of perspective? You know, they've had a a great season with a young team that lacks depth and quality. You know, certainly in defence and central midfield. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think there's no shame in finishing second to Manchester City. Not this Manchester City; they're a monster of a side, and but there will be great frustration at this performance, and rightly so. Arsenal didn't show their best selves in the biggest match of the season so far. Way, way below par. I think Mikel Arteta said ahead of kickoff the team needed to be perfect or virtually perfect. And I think a lot of people were saying eights and nines are required across the board. And, and the reality is that we saw fives across the board from Arsenal in this game. And 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 yeah, in a way, they were, they were fortunate to only lose 4-1. Definitely perspective is required. I think Arsenal fans should still feel incredibly proud of this team and what they've achieved. Um, but yeah, the, the squad depth was always going to be an issue. I mean, the difference between City and Arsenal in that regard is a little bit scary. And and because they've had so much football, because they've had so many emotional games, been through so many sort of yeah emotions already... I do think that they look a little bit drained, Arsenal. Uh, whereas City have been able to rotate their, their starting eleven throughout the campaign. They just look fresher. Pep has that. He has them peaking at the right time every single season, doesn't he? Mm. And this is shaping into a signature season, isn't it, Luce? Because if you think about it, that directness you spoke about, that verticality, well, you know, that's another adaptation tactically that he's come up with. But also, I was really struck by how the use of Kevin De Bruyne is almost like a 
a masterclass in performance management, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, obviously, generally the use of, of De Bruyne, I mean, I, I think he, Pep's quite clever. He calls out his players in public and he did that a few weeks ago with De Bruyne saying he basically expected more from him because he wasn't quite, I mean, he, he had some sublime performances and then other times he, he looked like he was a little bit jaded. But I think that in terms of, the periodization of all his players, like A just said then, is perfect, particularly with the elite ones, the elite of the elite of his players like De Bruyne. And and he just reveled in the fact that they were playing a little bit of a different system or the, the way he was playing De Bruyne was a little bit different. And because it worked right at the start and Arsenal couldn't get a grip of it, he just absolutely flourished. But, I mean, Pep always says that he likes to work with a small squad, I think, relatively small squad but the thing about the difference between those two teams last night is that the players that Pep brought on would start in any other team in the mm. Premier League whereas Arsenal because of the injuries you know they struggled with that that depth of squad and I think that because they've not got players at the level say Saliba I know Holding's got a little bit of stick and not really about him personally it's about the depth of the squad and the injuries that they've got it just affects others around but yeah I, you know it was it, it was a pretty dominant performance really. Mm. Also, I, I spoke about their intensity earlier on. Erling Haaland, he got his customary goal. That's 49 and counting. But he's about more than goals, isn't he? When you think about it, he's not just seven assists for the season, but his appreciation of space and almost like that manic intensity that he had. He's really getting into defenders' heads, isn't he? You could see times when Harding's soul was leaving his body. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a scary striker to face, isn't he? And you could see with Holding and Gabriel, how many times did we see them backpedalling, dropping off deep and Haaland having, having a run on them? You know, that's because they were frightened stiff of his, of his power and his pace. I do think in this game, Arsenal... Failed to protect the centre-halves. Thomas Partey, I'm not sure what was up with him. But, you know, this is one of the most athletic players in the Premier League. He can charge around the pitch and be a real force at the base of midfield. But he laboured. It was was like he was running in treacle at times when he was tracking Kevin De Bruyne. And I, I use that term loosely, really, because he wasn't tracking De Bruyne anywhere near enough. Yeah, and but I, I go back to that goal, that first goal is the new city. And that and that is what Haaland brings. Arsenal went to press, really intense, enthusiastic, but they committed too many men forward really to that press and left Partey on his own with the centre-halves. And because they've got Haaland, they can go long now. They can go boom, we'll miss out the press. And because he held he, he held it up well and De Bruyne got goal side of, of Partey, it was game over. And from that moment, I think Arsenal's belief drained and cities grew. And then they just suffocated them, didn't they, with the press. Arsenal in recent games have been caught on the ball in bad areas for numerous goals. And Manchester City did that for two of the goals in this game. And um, yeah, it's no coincidence. I just think they've, I think Arsenal have tightened up in possession in recent weeks, maybe because of the pressure. And Manchester City absolutely preyed on that. Mm. I'd like to look at it from a the broadest possible perspective, if I could. Luce, who, or maybe what, can prevent City turning the Premier League into basically a superannuated version of Ligue 1? Listen, I think what's what happened last night and, and sort of in recent weeks and how City have changed, it just shows how good Liverpool have been in the last few seasons because it was, you know, neck and neck. Liverpool were only a couple of games away from winning four last season, weren't they? And I think that, you know, Arsenal have been... We've seen Arsenal, you know, we, we've seen them come back from behind. We've seen them dominate teams. We've seen them just look absolutely immense. But it still looks like they're going to play, be second best to City. And I'm not sure. And I think you're right. That That's the worry because the thing that we love best about the Premier League is that, you know, top of the table could go to the bottom of the table and, and lose. And we don't want to lose that from the Premier League because I think that's that actually adds that, you know, when they talk about being the best league in the world, I think that that is, is one of the, the best things about it. Yeah, I, I know I'm really biased in terms of I really want Arsenal <laughs> to, to win the league. That looks very, very unlikely now. But I also think that anyone that isn't a Manchester City fan 
should want something different too, should want a challenger. And I think it is bad for the Premier League that Manchester City are dominating in the way that they are. And obviously there are charges hanging over the club at the, at the moment. We don't know what's going to come of those. So it's, it isn't a good look for the division to have such a dominant team, that is for sure. So I, th- I think it's a shame for Arsenal that they've. it looks like they're going to wilt at the end. But I also think it's a real pity for English football in general that, that we might not have another another winner. And, and when you look at how far everyone else is behind Arsenal City, you know, it's not even close. So, yeah, it's, it's that's a disappointment, I think. Mm. When you look at it, if, if, we're, if we want a bit of red meat in our football, Lucy, I don't think we can look too far from the, the relegation struggle. It's still congested. You've got, you know, occasions like the Leeds-Leicester game on Tuesday night, which was a draw in which both teams lost, if it doesn't sound a bit daft. The average required to avoid relegation is 35 points. Do you think that's about a good guy for this season's scramble? Yeah, there's just so many teams involved in it. And I am a mathematician, but just cannot work that one out in my head, Mike. I think I've forgotten my A-level maths. But I think that that's what makes it the most exciting. I think there's always a team that, that gets drawn into a relegation, not necessarily relegation, but flirts with it towards the end of the season because the ones at the bottom start winning because they, they have to and they're maybe playing against teams that have nothing to play for. But I think this time... I mean, I heard I was listening to the radio last night talking about Chelsea and thinking if there was a few more games left in this season, then Chelsea, Chelsea <laughs> looked like they'd be dropped. So this is that's how good I say good. That's how interesting to watch if you're not involved. The relegation battle is that that there's teams down there, and it, you know I, I sort of look at the, the the league table now. You know, if Bournemouth can win tonight, then you think that they might be out of it. But if they don't, then, you know, there's Bournemouth, Leeds, Forest, Leicester, Everton for those two two spots, unless Southampton do something incredible. So I don't think that you can sort of put a, a number on it because you just never know what people are going to do because, the, you know, the, the team's beating teams all over the place. And there will be that settled mid-table who, you know, that... that famous on the beach but it is the, the teams do relax when they get to the end of the season because they can see the end is nigh and and they actually know they're going to be in the Premier League and so therefore they just they just relax a little bit but there's teams fighting for points all over the place yeah that you know that's a consequence of all these sort of relegation six pointers that we're getting if you think of it Leeds at Bournemouth on Sunday Leicester at home to Everton on Monday and as you said, Luce, Bournemouth at Southampton uh, on Thursday. Is this a natural consequence, Aid, of just the situation? And what are the pressures inherent in those type of games? <laughs> yeah, I think it is an unusual season, isn't it? In that it's so wide open at the bottom. Everyone is so bunched up. So we're getting more of these six-pointers than normal. I think... I think calm heads is is probably the most important trait you need because... It's easy to be pumped up and hyped for these games and to give it your all. You know, that's the prerequisite. You've got to give it your all. You've got to be at it. You've got to show passion and have fire in your belly. That, that, those are normal things. I think it's the teams that can stay cool, stay clinical and remember the game plans that might prevail really between now and the end of the season. On that score, I'm quite impressed by Dean Smith's Leicester. At the moment, they, they're getting better in games. It's no coincidence, I don't think. His substitutions are really working. They've, they've got stronger in the game at Leeds. They got stronger in the game against Wolves. I think those are really positive signs, actually, that they've got a plan B and that they can turn to it and stay calm and not panic when they go behind. Yeah, I think that's that's key. But there are so many important factors. I was looking at Leeds' fixtures as well, Lucy. I don't want to be the bearer of no, bad listen, news. I, can't see I mean, him. you know this. Yeah, I mean, I look and, and, you know, somebody said to me yesterday, I can't see Leeds getting another point. I'm like, can mm. you imagine? I mean, the whole place will explode. <laughs> I'm telling you It is, it is a tougher running. Three of the yeah. top eight you've got. And then obviously the two six-pointers at West Ham and Bournemouth. They are really hard games. And Leeds have a rotten record against yep. the better sides in the Premier League. I was looking at it against the top eight across the last two seasons. Leeds have, have won two of 29 um, and they've got three of them. 
between yeah. now and the end of the season. So with that limited belief as well. I mean that that's yeah. the thing. It's not yeah. It, it, obviously historically they, they don't win those, but you know they they do look a little bit lost. Leeds. I think there's been so many mistakes being made, which we'll obviously talk about later at Leeds that you know but above at the highest level. But you know when it get gets to this point, you know that you've got to produce, and I, I just I don't know where they're going to get it from because. Yeah, you know, Luce, if you think about it, you know, when we talk about the qualities required to survive, you know, we talk about experience, unity, belief. But what about decisive management? You know, I looked at Javi Garcia on Tuesday night and it was it was a rabbit in the headlights job because, you know, he wasn't responsive until it was too late to a changing situation, you know, poor use of substitutions. Whereas, you know, as Aid said, Dean Smith got his spot on. Yeah, I think that's that's it. I mean, the, the the manager has to be the coolest person in terms of decision making. It's very, very difficult to make decisions under pressure. You know, it doesn't matter what job you do. It's very difficult to, to do that. And as a player, you can get the physical part of it can can interfere with that. You become a little, like it said, come a little bit tense and you don't make good decisions. But, but the managers have to have clarity. When you've got Dean Smith, who's experienced, when you've got Deitch at, at Everton, who set up simple game plans, give simple information that's easy to understand for a footballer who has a head full of whatever. I think that that will give, perhaps give give the edge. But Gracia, I, I agree with you. You know, that, I know the fans, because fans think they know, you know, the fa- we walk our dogs every morning and we, we, we pass Leeds fans and when they've lost, it's just like, oh, what's going to happen, you know? And and why are they not playing Nonto? Why are they... And there's a reason, there must be a reason why he's not putting Nonto on. There must be. I mean, I don't know what it is. I think there's <laughs> something gone on in the background with Leeds and I've heard little whispers about some things that have gone in, in the background at Leeds that when it, where it's not quite all harmony. But, you know, that managers don't leave a really good player on the bench for no reason unless they completely lost it but but yeah it's um it is about making having clarity of decision but it's easier said than not because you really cannot see i mean i've i've been at worked at training grounds in relegation battles and worked close with a manager who has to make those and you really at some points you can't see the wood for the trees you can't you can't make those decisions because the pressure is so intense for these managers they will not sleep on a night they will not sleep some of the players won't either thinking about the the consequences and and it just floods them so having to make good decisions with clarity you know is a very very difficult thing Mm. well Patrick Bamford became the embodiment of the fine margins that were involved with that late miss at Ellen Road on Tuesday night thankfully he's a deceptively durable character and he needs to follow his own advice. Well, welcome, Patrick. Just want to climb aboard the TARDIS with you here. A bit of a time machine job, this. You're speaking to a, a young player who'd started kicking a ball at four, entered an academy at eight, like yourself. What would you tell him about the realities of the professional game? There's a few things to be fair. I'd tell him not everything is probably as perhaps as beautiful as it seems. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that you can't control, but also that people don't see, if you know what I mean. So people see your footballers, everyone sees footballers as rich, famous people. They don't see like the hard work and the stuff and the sacrifice. So I think what I'd tell that young lad is probably you're going to need a thick skin and just believe in yourself because you're going to have probably more people tell you you can't do it than you are who are going to tell you that you can do it. So I think that's probably having thick skin and self-belief is probably the, the main thing you need. Mm. From personal experiences, sort of observing the academy process in particular, which can be really brutal, you see young players, immature personalities in many cases, almost getting the game out of proportion, it becomes almost too important. Can you understand that? Yeah, I can understand that. And I think that, look, at the end of the day, I'd say maybe 8% of footballers, like football is the life. Do you know what I mean? So if you're not thinking about football, there's nothing really else that you're doing. And I think to a point I was like that as well. And I think it's only as you start getting a bit older and into the game 
and realizing that like when you start having a family and things like that that there's other things that have higher importance and football is something that you love but ultimately it's not the be all and end all so I think that you can get yourself stuck in that kind of little circle where you're beating yourself up if things aren't going too well and then you kind of get in too high if things start going well and things like that. Yeah because as you were growing up man it seems as an outsider anyway that you managed to establish that balance between education and sporting ambition you know I know there's been a lot in your background about the Harvard scholarship and all that sort of stuff but how important was that sense of having an almost an aim or an interest outside the game to actually almost prevent you being consumed by it I think it it was important because I had a deal with my mum and dad from the very get-go that they'd support me with as far as I wanted to go in football they'd support me as long as I finished my education and as long as I kept like my grades up and gave it my all in the education side of it, there wouldn't be an issue. I think that helped in, in a few ways because one, it kind of kept me close to all my school friends anyway because I was just a normal guy at school, even though I was playing football at the same time. But two, it also, it taught me that like, when you're doing something, you've got, no matter what it is, even if it's something that you don't particularly put as your priority, do it to your best ability because if I didn't do it to my best ability, then I wouldn't have been able to do what I wanted to do. It kept me kind of focused on what I wanted to do. But also, as you said, it was like almost a getaway from the stress of like, as you said, the academy and what's going to happen this week or are you going to get that next contract and things like that. And I was just a normal bloke or normal boy at school with my mates. Mm. Mm. What do you think has been the, the key lessons of your development process? Especially I'm thinking of of the loan sequence. You're playing as a young player usually against men. The players that I've spoken to always vividly remember the first elbow they get across the nose and all that sort of stuff. In your loan sequences, how important was that in terms of the creating the player that you are today? I think like each different loan spell kind of you learn different things depending on because it might be a different manager tactically. It might be a different <clears> manager in the way they deal with players and things like that. So I think you're always learning. I don't think there'll be many players that say that every loan spell they had went perfectly well and it was just like a easy steady rise to where they wanted to get to because there are ups and downs and that sometimes does make it difficult but when I look back on it I'm like it kind of gives me a little bit to be like well I need to prove them wrong because they didn't give me a fair crack of the whip or, or things like that but also it does toughen you up a little bit if you get past that because you know that that I've been through a hard time I suffered there didn't play as much as I wanted or wasn't enjoying it things like that eventually you will come out the other side of it and I think you've seen that with a lot of people who've gone through the loan route and eventually yeah you do come out on on the positive side of it mm, because again it's this whole idea you know it's, it's it's almost like a play on the old Muhammad Ali quote about greatness being created in the shadows almost you know away from the spotlight I spoke to Emmy Martinez on here a few weeks ago just after he got back from the World Cup and he was talking about how fundamental those Sunday sessions that he had training on his own with a single coach when he hadn't made the match day squad just almost that solitary pursuit of excellence is that something you can identify with as well yeah I think definitely things like that but also not just the fact that he's, he's training on his own but as I said about what I'd tell like a young boy having that tough skin like, it's not just what you need to get through the academy. Like That kind of stays with you, and, and those tough spells do give you that kind of hardened outlook on things, and uh, they do make you a lot tougher to things to come, really. I suppose with Emmy, like, I'm sure some Sunday mornings he'd have been hating it, but he's gone through all that, and now look, he's won the World Cup. So it's just proof that like, you, you, if you weather the hard times, then eventually you're going to come out on the, on the other side of it. Yeah, it's not a bad trade-off, is it, really? <laughs> you know, and I suppose people forget that football is a a flesh-and-blood game and it's played by human beings in many ways. You're speaking to me here from the gym. I'm sure you've spent many hours in their rehab, which is probably one of the worst aspects of professional football that people don't really know that much about. With those injuries that you've had, how have you coped with that? Do you know what? I think it, it's hard when... I was out for a long period of time last season, pretty much the whole season, to be honest. It was tough coming in knowing that 
I've still got a, a long way to go before I'm even close to getting back out on the pitch. But also the fact that all, all you're watching all your teammates and stuff go training and then you're having to watch them on a Saturday and as much as you want to support them, there's always that you feel like you're missing out a little bit. So it's overcoming that. And then the flip side that like people think, oh, he's been out for a long time, but he's back now. People don't realise that when you've been out for that long, like not acclimatising to how to play again, but you're going to pick up like little niggles again because you have had such a sustained period out playing. And that can be frustrating when you just pick up little things after you've come back from a, a long time out. But it's just one of them where it's similar with, as I said, having that, it gives you a bit of mental toughness because you know that it's not going to last forever. Like it's going to be a short time period in the grand scheme of things. And it's just really like, I find it easier by setting myself kind of targets and things to focus on. And in the early stages, that could be something as simple as like a gym exercise that I wanted to be able to do that was to do with the injury. Like, can I reach that kind of target in the next two weeks? And it just things like that helps you kind of concentrate and move forward. Because mm. that's the physical aspect, the mental aspect. Now, obviously, you're involved in, in a really tight situation towards the end of the season in terms of trying to escape relegation. Again, how do you deal with the emotions of that? Because that is something that, again, people probably would overlook. They think, well, okay, he turns up on a Saturday or a Wednesday night or whatever it is, and he plays his game and does what he does. But actually, from experience, you know, talking to, to people, you just can't escape it in terms of those reminders you get of, of what it means to other people. Yeah, I mean, it is everywhere, and especially in a, in a town or city like Leeds. It's just one club city, so everyone supports Leeds and everybody knows who you are. It's like the whole focus is always around the football club. So, yeah, there's no escaping it, but it's one of them where like, I try my best when I get home to shut off. I watch other football and stuff, but try to ignore like the comments and listen to things about our leads in the relegation fight and things like that because I feel like it just clouds your mind when you go out on the pitch. So that's a little bit of, I think, that something I've learned as I've got older to be able to kind of shut out the noise a little bit and what people are saying because maybe four years ago, five years ago, that would have affected me a little bit and I'd have been like, why are they saying that? Like, what, what are they on about? But now I'm just like, people are going to have their opinions no matter what. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or not, so they're going to say what they want to say. So for me, it's just like, just shut it out and concentrate on what we've got to do. Easier said than done sometimes, but it's what we've got to do. Yeah, because I was, I was speaking to a coach the other day about managing millennials. Now, obviously, you know, you're a little bit beyond that in terms of age profile, but younger players who are obviously in that, sort of Generation Z or whatever they call it, they almost define themselves by their social media profile. If you have a good game, they want to go on, they want to see how many likes they get and everything else. Again, you're becoming almost a senior pro in terms of dealing with things like that. Is that something you talk to other players about? Look, okay, if, if things aren't going that well, just take a step back. If I see like one of the young lads who's, I can tell he's having a bit of a hard time or suffering with something, then yeah, I'll speak to him and just tell them to keep their heads up. And one of the things I've always said, I've said it a few times to a few of the young players this season, is that, like, don't beat yourself up because football is a game that changes really quickly. One week you can be the villain and you've got a game three days later and all of a sudden you're the best thing that's ever happened to the club. So it is really, like, about that. So just... It was, it was actually something that Carl Robinson said to me when I was at MK Dons on loan. And obviously, as we were talking about picking up things from the loan, loan time... Mm. He said to me, don't get too high when you're high and don't get too low when you're low. Just try and keep like steady for it all. And when you're younger, you, you tend to do that. You do tend to beat yourself up. For me, it was like if I didn't score, I'd beat myself up and be in a bit of a mood after a game. But if I did score, I'd be really happy and everything would be. So it was kind of like learning to stay level through it all. And I think that if you can do that, then it is a big help. Yeah. Reflecting on, on the Leeds experience, I did a book. I was embedded at Millwall for a year and was on the bench at Ellen Road where Millwall turned up, which is, you know, a fairly tribal occasion, let's put it like that. The intensity of the atmosphere was amazing. Reflecting on that experience, what's it like to be on the pitch at Ellen Road when it's in full cry? Wow. It sounds so cliche, you know, when people say, oh, like the crowd pushed you on or it's like a 12th man. But sometimes, mm. like, especially certain games, 
you can sense it like before the, the game's even kicked off and it is literally just gives you that kind of if you were feeling a little bit leggy from a game two days before or a little bit tired you just forget about it because you've got that energy excitement from the crowd but then there's been times where maybe we've underperformed and in the first half maybe gone two goals down and the crowd can sometimes get a little bit like hostile but then the second half they've come back out and they've ended up bringing us back to get to 3-2 to because you know as soon as we score one goal that's it the crowd's like dragging us over the line and over the years I've been here like that's happened at least probably four or five times so it is special and at the teams I've been at I don't think I don't think anywhere really compares to the noise when it is that loud how big a role do you think will the fans play in the run-in? And do you have faith that you as a group have the collective qualities to survive? Yeah, 100%. I think, obviously, the crowd's going to be big, as I said. There's going to be games that might not necessarily start the way we want to, but it's about kind of, if we need it, dragging us over the line, and I'm sure they'll do that. But, yeah, in terms of quality of the players we've got, I honestly think that this is... like The squad we have now is a better squad in terms of depth, in terms of quality, that we had in, in the first year when we came up into the Premier League. It's just been, there's been obviously different factors like injuries, things like that, and obviously different circumstances that have changed things for us. But I do think with the players we've got and the manager we've got now, that we'll be fine. And we've definitely got more than enough quality. Mm. With uh, Harry Garcia, in, I'm always fascinated in, in coaching cultures and philosophies. How would you describe him as a coach and a manager? Very meticulous in terms of not too dissimilar to Marcelo in terms of the detail that he wants to, that he looks at the game and he sees the game. But as a person, he's, I've had a lot of managers obviously with the loan system. He's the calmest manager. Like he takes all the pressure off in terms of if things are getting heated and he's very calm. Like he knows how to kind of keep the players calm and make sure that everyone's level-headed and everyone's ready and the pressure's not there. So I think he's kind of changed that for us a little bit. And sometimes when you look to the touchline and you've got a manager who's like that, and even on the training pitch and he's talking through it, things like that, that does help the players and it reassures them. So I've been really impressed with him and his, the way he is around and his, his coaches as well have been brilliant. Mm. Just finally, really, for you, what does success and what does a successful career look like? I think that's a question that the answer always changes. So if you'd asked me that when I was 15, 16, it would have been to be a professional footballer. And then obviously after I'd done well in the championship, it would have been to establish myself in the Premier League. And then a dream I'd always said to my family was that if I retired and I played for England just once, that I would be a happy guy. Like That would be a dream come true. And then, obviously, I got called up for England and played for him, and now all I want to do is try and get more. So it, it keeps changing and it keeps evolving, and it's one of them things where I'm never like, OK, I've done it now, because now I want to do more and achieve more. So it's quite hard to put an answer to that because it is always changing. Yeah, well, whatever the, the answer is eventually, thanks for your time and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, Pat. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Well, I, he struck me as a, a really measured, reflective individual in that interview. That will obviously help in the aftermath of his miss. Do you identify with his advice to younger players not to beat themselves up? Absolutely. Yeah, no, completely. I thought it was a really good interview. So well done, Mike. Thank <laughs> you, man. I, I think, I mean, he's had, he's had a very different and much more successful playing career than, than me, but... I think his words could have been my words, if you, if you know what I mean. I, th I agreed with so much of, of what he said about, you know, what's required from players mentally, because it's a tough old profession. It is ruthless, it's brutal, and it can chew you up and spit you out, you know, so easily. You do have to be thick-skinned. You do have to be really balanced in your mindset, and you've just got to retain your belief through all the downs because you eventually, if, if you stick at it long enough, you will, and you're good enough, you will find a manager and a home that suits you. 
and there is no point dwelling and 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 beating yourself up especially these days with social media it, it must be so hard for players to block out the noise but you've got to with his miss we've all missed chances like that you can snatch at a chance it comes at you quickly you don't get a good contact it's it's not the crime of the century, but if he was to read about it, he would feel that <laughs> like it was, wouldn't he? So, yeah, well done, Patrick. Just ignore it and, um, yeah, crack on. I always think, having worked sort of in a professional football club for, for like nearly 20 years, and particularly with young players, it always makes me laugh how the general public think that being a professional footballer is easy. And it is so difficult to be and, and I know everybody will go yeah all right then you know they paid a lot of money and but in terms of the pressure right that, that they're under so you you play well Saturday you still got to play well Tuesday and if you don't play well Tuesday you still got to then perform next and and that is absolutely constant it's a constant pressure of playing well and, and, and young players who haven't even got a professional contract yet they go through so many ups and downs you know, so many people telling them that they're good enough or they're not good enough or, you know, they're in situations where it's everywhere is competitive. The whole place is competitive, whether it's about, you know, getting the place in the team when you're a young kid or whether it's what you're wearing or what your hair's like, or what your girlfriend's like, whatever it is. Everything's competitive. So they don't get ever get away with it. They don't ever ease. And then you become a professional footballer. You get your first contract and that's the day that you start earning your next one. And you constantly do that all the way through your career. Yes, some of, some of them are well paid, but I think people who do normal jobs, they're not, they're not under that sort of pressure. You know, if, if they make a mistake, one or two people see it. If these, these lot make a mistake, you know, there's thousands see it and then social media, etc. And I think that that's, that's the bit that people find difficult to, to understand, which, you know, you sort of see from, I've seen from firsthand a lot. Someone, someone's always there to take your job, aren't they, yeah. Lucy? And, <laughs> and and you, when you're in that first team and you you don't perform, it, yeah, the it can really get to you, and you've got to you've got to find a way to cope. You've got to have coping mechanisms. What I liked about Patrick's attitude, and I also could empathise with this, was was his attitude towards school as a young player growing up and how his family sort of challenged him to make sure that he did, you know, they'll support him if, if he continues to do his best at school. And personally, I think it is important to have something outside of football that you can take your mind into a different place. I, I really do think that's, that's important because the mental challenges a footballer faces can, can be tortuous and you've got, yeah, you've got to cope with quite a lot. He would have been my dream. I mean, I've had a few absolute breezes of, of lads come through the academy. James Milner being one of them. Lewis Cook being another who did everything at the same level. Doesn't matter whether they enjoyed it or not. They, they weren't the same level. Bamford just seems to be exactly the same as that, which is perfect for, for somebody who did a job like mine. Yeah, because I, you know, as I look at it, I, you know, I've not played, but it takes real character, doesn't it, to dwell on the ball for more than a millisecond in those sort of matches. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. Yeah, but that's what that's what the practice and all that training is for, isn't it? That's where you hone your skills and your trade, and and you. It's for those moments where you need to deliver. You know, that's what you paid the big bucks for, and and I think it's as much about your mental fortitude in those moments as it is your technique, really. And you've you've got to be a strong character mentally and, and I think Lucy's right it's it's about keeping that even keel it's boring <laughs> it's really dull isn't it where you say you can't enjoy the highs that much but but don't get too low keep this sort of middle ground it is it's dull it's a dull way of looking at life but I think in professional sport especially one as competitive as as professional football you have to mm-hmm. you've already alluded to it Luce the fan factor if you like the passion can be double-edged, can't it? Because if you look at Ellen Road, they're obviously not happy about certain things, recruitment, the way the club's being run. Will the influence of the fans and their mood, which is obviously transferable, as Patrick talked about, will that influence be beneficial or will it be a potential distraction? 
we saw a good example of the Ellen Road crowd. When when Leicester scored that early goal, which everybody thought was a goal until VAR intervened, you could see the crowd, right, we're turning. This is it. We've had enough. And you could see the, the, the camera panned amongst the crowd. You could see them ready to, to kick off. It's a really heavy shirt to wear, that lead shirt at Ellen Road. I've seen over the years, you know, really good performing teams and really horrifically performing teams play there. And there's some players that they just they just cannot play in that shirt. Because there's no there's nowhere to hide, and I know it goes for all, for for all stadiums, but I, I I think that 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 Leeds because of the history and the the expectations of the fans and and the you know how how many fans get themselves in there, so it can be. But I I understand the pain because the the management at the top has just been awful. They had no plan in place for for Bielsa. They didn't support Bielsa particularly with signings. Then they brought Marsh in and supported him with signings and then sacked him a couple of weeks later then didn't have any then then had the you know the 23s coach who obviously wasn't ready for management he drew at Liverpool and then they thought he could he could be in charge so there's been the recruitment has been at times most of the time awful and this is what the the, the fans are basically annoyed about because you know they they saw that they had Bielsa and I know they're all heart back to Bielsa but they had Bielsa and they feel like that the management above the ownership didn't harness what he had and didn't help him. And I, and I know he probably reached the end of time and you, you sort of, you know, re, you, you redo the history, don't you, in your own head. But there's been no real plan since. And he made average championship players into good Premier League players. And I'm not even... That is exactly what he did. And now we're seeing the fact that they haven't got a top coach there. They haven't had a top coach there since Bielsa and the ownership can't dine out on what Bielsa and the reality is, is hitting home pretty stark. Mm. Well, a confession and apologies for both of you here. I watched the first 25 minutes of, of the Forest-Brighton game, then turned over at half-time at City to watch the end of that Brighton-Forest game. The intensity of the atmosphere there was amazing. It took me back to the Clough era in many ways. So when we're talking about fans' aid, conversely, the Forest fans lifted that team to an absolutely critical win, didn't they? Yeah, it, it can be a superpower. It can be a superpower for Leeds as well um, when, when the team are, are flying. Make no mistake about that. But yeah, Forest. I've been there a lot in recent seasons, and you know the Muller Kintyre ahead of kickoffs always a bit special, and and they do have they do have a really powerful support, and I think it's about the connection at the City Ground. Lucy's been talking about Leeds, a disconnect between the fans and the ownership, a disconnect between the, the fans and the, and the the manager. Well, at Nottingham Forest. They are so connected. It is a family. And I think football clubs, when they're thriving, a little bit like Arsenal this season, are like a family. And everyone is pulling the same direction together. And that's exactly what's happened at Forest. And that's actually why their owner, despite absolutely wanting to press the trigger, to pull that trigger on Steve Cooper, he somehow restrained himself because he didn't want to break up this family. And he was right to do so. And it's their best chance of survival, that unity between everybody at the city ground. It, it is powerful. Look at their home record. Compare it with the away record. It's, it's chalk and cheese. So, yeah, that, it's what will keep them up if Nottingham Forest can get the points, obviously. Mm. They're still terrifyingly vulnerable at set pieces, aren't they, Luce? They need now to follow that one up, don't they, and get something out of of Saturday's game at Brentford they've also got another of those six pointers at Southampton on May the 8th that could be potentially decisive as well couldn't it yeah that that like I said the problem is with the the their away form is that the away form drops up far I mean I know you expect the, your home form to be better and if you can just you rely on that that's all right but they, they they had been relying on that and then got a couple of dodgy results but their away form they, they they're just not getting anything so you at least try and get something from the away games that they've they've got left but I think they caught Brighton at a good time after the the, the FA Cup semi-finals I think they got a couple of players back 
but that just gives belief. If you can get a performance and a, and a you know after missing a penalty and then getting the win, then that gives you that belief. And and if you can grasp even a, just a tiny bit of belief going into the next games, then you know I I think that that's what Forest need. But Cooper's had such a difficult job integrating all those players because he would have wanted all those players. Not all of them have been hits, which is the nature of, of, of recruitment. But then you've got to deal with that as well. So I think he's a good man. And I think that that, that translates into being a good good manager. Yeah, well, having um, just spoken to him for next week's podcast, <laughs> I can fully concur with that one. Um, I, I'd just like to finish, if we could, with a little sort of toddle into misery corner. <laughs> Chelsea. Chelsea and Spurs <laughs> that's the one <laughs> or the two um, Chelsea look another absolutely damning defeat at the bridge to Brentford I think that was their seventh home game this season without a goal Pochettino's obviously going to be a good appointment but that's turning into a bit of a waiting for Godot bit isn't it really will he have the scope to manage <laughs> it's a million dollars. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, Todd Bowley. A million dollars cheap. It's a yeah, lot more yeah. than that. <laughs> I do think that if Pochettino does agree to go there, it's a risk because Todd Bowley is very hands-on and has made a lot of mistakes already. And he's also shown himself to be really ruthless. You know, he's got rid of one of the world's best coaches in Thomas Tuchel. And then he's got rid of the long-term manager that, that he had on a, a huge contract and that he, he brought all his staff with him. He, he got rid of him as well. So after the PSG disappointment for Pochettino, it's, I think it's a bit of a gamble. But if anyone can pull together a group of players, talented players, then I think it probably is him. He, he's a, players seem to love Pochettino and we all know that they're talented. The, the squad is, is, is gifted, isn't it? It just needs pulling together they need to create a team so um, he will make the players feel better about themselves and maybe get a tune out of some of the guys but um, I think yeah if he does go in there he needs to axe quite a lot and and slim down that squad because no manager can cope with that amount of big earning superstar players and make them into a team I just I think it's almost mission impossible Mm, it's going to be a very messy summer isn't it Luce yeah, it is. I think that 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 was a problem for for Graham Potter. The the amount of players, and it, and it's not just about selecting his his squad where he has to leave out basically probably ten players who think they should all be starting out of the squad, the match day squad. So when he turns up to the training ground and he, and he puts a session on, right? This is the reality of the situation. Say that he has a group of twenty. 20 plus he's still got another 15 that all think they should be playing who are not involved in the training session but if they are involved in the training session then the training session becomes a little bit disrupted or a bit bit messy because you can't really do what you want to do then you show your hand of and who you're having in the squad and the players are like big babies and so they'll cause issues so <laughs> you imagine I- asking a Bamiyang to run the line in a training game look look mate I can't can't fit you in can you just run the line and uh, f- f- yeah Joao Felix can you do the other one is that all right yeah I, but and he literally is that you know he, he, he put his t- list out that you know they put the lists out for who's training where and with who and if you're not with the manager or the manager's the manager's coach, then you're not involved. You know you're not involved. So that just it just turns players and and it's so you know they're in a situation where he needs to Pochettino be, needs to be allowed to trim the squad. He's had the experience of working with big hitters at PSG who did exactly what they wanted. Allegedly, you know, getting them out of nightclubs and all that sort of stuff and he knows that he'll have a little bit more control at, at Chelsea and he's a he looks like that the play like yeah, so the, the players love him so if he's allowed to just have a manageable squad I think that he will succeed because the players are good it's just there's just too many mm. what about Spurs eh? they're at Liverpool on Sunday which you know can be probably billed as two clubs destined to miss out on the Champions League Spurs give the impression anyway of being a club absolutely out of control despite Daniel Levy being the control freak's control freak <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, don't they really yeah it's, it's weird it's, a, it's not a situation I don't know I mean they've got themselves into a right corner haven't they I just if you look at it from a football point of view rather than sort of just about Daniel Levy I think 
the recruitment's been shocking, hasn't it? It's been really, really poor. And I think they've allowed as well the profile of the team to be a little bit too old and a little bit too reliant on Kane and Son, who are now, you know, in their 30s. And and they've had this chronic sh- shortage of creativity for years now, you know, with, without Ericsson. S- so should we be surprised that that they're floundering now? I don't, I don't think we should really. If you're na- if you're Nagelsmann, yeah, would you no, go there? I wouldn't, no. But I, I don't like Spurs because I'm an Arsenal supporter, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that would that would prohibit me. Um, but no, genuinely, I probably wouldn't because there's a lot of work to be done there, and your two best players are getting on a bit, and one of them I think is likely to leave in the summer. So in Harry Kane, sure, surely the time has come for him to to try something new. So I think Nagelsmann can do a lot better than Tottenham Hotspur in their current state. That's my honest opinion. Um, they'll get a good manager uh, because, you know, it's a big club and they've got a lot of money and they will come again. But it feels like it it's going to take two or three years before they are strong again. Mm. This was a final point, Luce. In situations like this, how much blame should be apportioned to the players because they're the constant factor in all this chaos aren't they yeah I mean the thing about players as as a collective and as a group who behave in a certain way because of each other and because of the, the status that they hold you give them an inch or they spot an inch and they take three miles so it's an ideal opportunity for everybody to look elsewhere and blame everything else that's going on at, at Spurs and not really look at the players as, as a collective because everybody's, you know, looking at the dead cat down at the other side of the road. So I think that I think that, that gives the players an opportunity. But I think there's there's enough Spurs fans that, that'll point fingers and, you know, you're not performing, you know, that there's certain players but it, I think a little, little bit like a Liverpool that, that just needs a refresh. You know, Harry Kane does owes Spurs absolutely nothing, so he will go wherever he wants to go to 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 win things. And it's a shame that he couldn't do that at Spurs. But I think a, a, a sort of refresh of the squad is needed with a you know a manager that's going to have that bit of energy about him and taking them forward. Mm. Well, if Spurs get one more important decision wrong. And to be honest, I wouldn't bet against that. They'll be marooned outside the Champions League for the foreseeable future. Now, what that future holds for the game in general remains to be seen. It seems UEFA, under President Alexander Seferin, knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Seferin is already committed to unnecessary and unwelcome changes to the structure of the Champions League. We have to hope he was only testing the water by suggesting the final could be held in the US after 2025. If that money-driven corporate junket is approved, we might as well all give up. Thanks at least for true believers like Lucy and Adrian. Thanks also to Patrick Banford. He's learned... Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Never to make a drama out of a crisis. 